We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to a special U.S. election edition of Taiwan This Week. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Of course, Taiwan This Week is ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan, and uh, we will cover a bit of the weekly news grind. But most of our program today is going to be set aside for the only thing on anyone's mind at this point, the U.S. election, which will come to a merciful conclusion just next Tuesday, U.S. time, Wednesday, Taiwan time. Uh, obviously important to uh, a lot of people around the world, been weighing on a lot of people's minds. Uh, but we'll be taking a look at what it's going to mean for folks right here in Taiwan. And to help us do that, uh, we have, as always, the show's co-host, Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. Also in studio with us today, uh, we are welcoming back frequent contributor Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory. Hello, Ross. Good evening. Uh, and we should uh, let our listeners know that you are also the past chairman of uh, Republicans Abroad Asia. So you have quite an interest in this election. Uh, correct. Yes, I, I certainly do have a partisan history. All right. So we hope that you bring that uh, fiery partisan history to bear. And we are happy to welcome back onto the show the former American Institute in Taiwan director, Dr. Bill Stanton, who is the current director of the Asian Policy Center at National Tsinghua University. Bill, really glad to have you back as well. Oh, thank you. And of course, you also have a, a very long diplomatic career uh, where you served under presidents from uh, both parties. Uh, should we be uh, expecting somebody who is above the partisan fray here? Uh, I no longer have to be above the partisan fray. And I've seen problems with uh, administrations run by both parties. So I have my own views, which um, right now are strongly in favor of Hillary Clinton winning the election. Perfect. All right. So uh, fitting right in, fitting right in with the uh, partisan fray that we're uh, setting up for here. Uh, and we are also very excited to invite onto the show for the very first time, all the way from uh, the National Security Council, uh, we've got Vincent Chow, who uh, himself is the Chief of Staff to NSC Secretary General Joseph Wu. Uh, Vincent, welcome to the show. Hi, good evening. I was thinking I was the only one above the partisan fray today. Ah, well, uh, you're, 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 you're in good company. We'll see how it all shakes down. Uh, and uh, I thought it might be helpful to our listeners just to kind of clue them in. Uh, what exactly a National Security Council does? Uh, your your office is responsible for... Well, I think we're similar to the NSC and the states and many other countries in this context in which we take a look at uh, national security in the broader context, which includes uh, international affairs, cross-trade, trade, defense, and so forth. So it's quite a big area of, uh, of uh, focus uh, that we do. All right, so we're going to be getting that perspective. Uh, and it would be fair to say, Tsai uh, Wen is the, the chairman of uh, the NSC? Uh, yes, she is. So a few people know that. Uh, thanks for picking up on that. I, I do my Wikipedia-ing like a pro. <laughs> uh, and, and so it would be fair to say that you're part of the administration. Uh, yes, that's right. All righty. Now, uh, now that we've done a good job of introducing everybody on the show, uh, we're going to actually ignore them all for a couple of minutes uh, because we have some quick headlines that I want to run through real quick. Uh, and the guy who's going to help us out with that is Gavin. Uh, and we're going to start out with the biggest news of the week. Luckily, it's something we've covered a whole bunch already, that being the Cross-Strait Peaceful Development Forum in Beijing. That being uh, an annual meeting between top Chinese leadership and top KMT leadership, uh, which this week saw a KMT delegation led by party chairman Hong Shouju make a trip on over to China. 
Uh, but if you're into handshakes and photo ops, the real action came before the forum even began, uh, on Tuesday, in fact, when Hong had a face-to-face meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Gavin? Yes, Hong met Xi Jinping at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, where she promoted a peace platform, which she said was aimed at facilitating cross-strait stability and prosperity. She or she? She, as in Hong. Ah, got it. There we go. For now, for now, for now. And Hong said, well, this contrasts sharply with what she described as the DPP's independence platform. Mm. Now, according to Hong, she didn't say much about her peace platform, but she said it will seek to benefit people on both sides of the strait. And she also believes that both sides of the strait should also work to consolidate the 1992 consensus as a base for cross-strait peace and prosperity. Mm. She also said after meeting with Xi that she fully expressed Taiwan's voice during her meeting with the Chinese head of state and called for China to support Taiwan's bid to participate in international affairs. Now, of course, this was the... She didn't actually attend the opening ceremony or the closing ceremony of the Peace Forum in Beijing. Mm. Instead, she attended a couple of panels, one about economics and the other one about youth affairs. But she again touted the peace platform and touted the KMT being the only party that can probably deal with China affairs vis-a-vis Taiwan. Right, you mentioned the peace platform. She did mention a peace accord. Well, uh, she mentioned a vaguely a peace accord, but still nobody knows what would be in the peace accord. Nobody knows who the peace accord will be signed by and no one knows whether it will be actually even worth the paper it's written on. Well, especially since, I mean, if, if she had brought that to the meeting, it would have been illegal. You're basically, yes. So we know nothing. It's just called a peace platform and a peace proposal. Okay. We'll now, she flew, flew, she arrived back in Taiwan Thursday late afternoon, where she told people at the airport, whether they be supporters, some 500 KMT supporters turned out at Taoyuan International to greet her. And, of course, members of the press were there. And Hong told them all that she experienced the goodwill and sincerity of China's President Xi Jinping. All right. Now, getting back to the uh, panel, to the you know the the forum itself, uh, there were a couple of things that came out of that. We heard about a new political panel that would help facilitate cross-strait talks. A new political panel, yes. But again, again, a new political panel, cross-strait talks between who and who. The only thing that came out of the forum was when China and the KMT both agreed that they need to deepen the 1992 consensus and it should be the basis of cross-strait ties. Mm. Big news, big news. Big news, what we could have probably repeated the week after next because it will be still be the same news. <laughs> yeah, we could but just rebroadcast. That'll save us some uh, recording time. Pessimistic Perfect. about that. And, of course, the next big story of the week, we'll move on quickly here, was the Labour Standards Act, of course. we had right. It began on Wednesday when student activists stormed the offices of the DPP and tried to b- clashed with police, basically, in the 10th floor of the DPP building. We got a mini-occupation. They didn't last long. It lasted about 30 minutes, the occupation, before police threw them out the building. And But after the, when they were thrown out the building, the student leaders said they will continue to protest the government's plans to cut seven national holidays. Why students were complaining about having more national holidays is beyond me. How many holidays do students have anyway? Now, 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 I'm now. just being pessimistic again, because I'm allowed to be. But the bigger story of the um, whole Labour standards barahoo happened on Thursday, of course, when Labour rights activists basically had gone into a pushing fight outside the Legislative UN. The security was upped outside the Legislative building and the Labour rights groups said we're going to go on hunger strike, indefinite hunger strike from today, this being Friday, in protest over the government's moves to amend the Labour Standards Act and institute a 40-hour work week at the cost of losing seven national holidays. All right, so they said they were going to hunger strike, now they're hunger striking. Well, apparently they're hunger striking from today. Alrighty. So a lot of hungry people out on the streets of Taipei right now, uh, and I'm sure that we will be following up on that story again.
again next week. But uh, like we said, we're going to be streaking on through all of these stories. Uh, so up next, we're going to be talking about... Oh, it's a long-term care program. 2.0! I didn't actually know that we had a 1.0, but uh, I guess we're getting everyone the update. Forgot, everyone forgot about that, because that's the yeah. one they had in place anyway. So we're so talking about the Long-Term works. Care Services Program 2.0, and this refers to both elderly care and also disabled, disabled care. care. Well, disadvantaged people, everybody mm-hmm. that can't really, you know, that needs care. Right. Seniors, basically, families that are suffering because they don't have enough money and they're handicapped, basically. Yes. And obviously, the biggest push here is to uh, deal with the aging population in Taiwan. Uh, an increasingly large issue will be a huge issue by uh, the 2020s. Uh, but most of what this proposal looks like it boils down to is opening up more care centers. Basically, here we go. is a quote. According to President Tsai Ing-wen, the goal of the program is to build a solid, affordable and universal long care service system, which is aimed at easing the burden of families, improving the quality of life for the elderly and to care for seniors at a community level. Basically, this means that they're going to do this in a... Well, the Ministry of Health basically said there's going to be a three-tier care system. A, B and C. The, the A tier will feature one care centre in every township, village and city, or two or more in villages, townships and cities that have larger populations. The B tier care centres will see one located in every junior high school's district, while the C tier centres will be located in every three boroughs, boroughs or wards, so services will be available to more people. Basically, more health clinics. All right. Now, this is a, started as a trial period this week. Um, apparently, health officials said 20 cities and counties submitted long-term care plans, but only nine cities and counties had their plans approved to go online this week on a trial basis. All righty. So, uh, long-term care services program 2.0 coming to a school district near you. But you know it's not coming to us, didn't you? <sighs> the great, the fantastic, the much maligned, the much troublesome, the much needed the much-forgotten-about Taipei to Taoyuan Airport MRT line. The much slightly delayed, apparently, by a slightly, minute or so. Slightly delayed by about years or so, basically. Well, I was talking about the train itself, oh, but the yeah, tra- the yeah. project as a whole. Well, we've had a couple of comments about that this week. First of all, we had the Taoyuan Metro Corporation um, president, Chen Kai Ling, saying that he believes that the system should be up and running by the end of the year. Now, d- two days later, the transport ministry turned around and said, hang on a minute, this is probably not going to happen. We are now looking at the first <laughs> six months of next year. Basically, so, the problem dealing. This is according to the Taoyuan Metro Corporation. The they have a they have a, a percentage, a reliability percentage. Mm-hmm. Now, according to the Tra- Air Metro Corporation, the system currently has a ninety nine percent reliability rating for three to four consecutive days. However, that figure is below the ninety nine percent reliability rating for seven consecutive days needed to apply for a Ministry of Transport inspection. So they can only. Only keep it going reliably for four days, but they want to see it going for a full seven days. Yep, and the Ministry of Transport came out and said, well, we basically know this, and while we'd like to see it open at year's end, um, chances are it's not going to, because, of course, there has to be inspections of the line, safety inspections of the entire line. They have to carry out tests, and also they're looking at enhancing stability on the line. This is another one of those stories where I feel like we could just save the tape on this one and replay it again in about six hey, months. Hey, we, we could have said this in 2010, <laughs> and we'd still be sitting here i'm telling you we just need a generic you know segment for this that we can just reuse over and over again yep. uh and anyway, it's, if we're go. snarky about this it's because the line runs right by our office and we've been waiting for it forever this whole region we're living in this region off one family mart because nobody wants to be here because there's no mrt line so. uh, he lives here as well 
Oh, you do? Uh, yes, oh, I do. Vincent, you live out in uh, Xinjiang. I do, I do. I All right. Well, I didn't, I didn't mean to cast any aspersions on Xinjiang, Sanchong. I've uh, been a denizen of this region for years and years, but we would like that MRT line. That's all I'm saying. All right, on to the main event, now that I've uh, dug myself out of that hole. The news has been dominated by the U.S. presidential election for more than a year now, about a year and a half, uh, as Gavin pointed out this morning. And it doesn't matter where you are or what kind of news you're interested in. Uh, it is absolutely pervasive. It's invaded every corner of this planet. It's everywhere. So we all know the basics. Republican candidate Donald Trump is scoring off against Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton. Uh, these candidates have been covered in excruciating detail. But one thing that has not played a huge role in this campaign season is foreign policy. Heard a little bit about it on, you know, the Russian front, that controversy. But... Uh, and we heard a little bit about, you know, angry rhetoric towards China from Donald Trump on trade deals. But, you know, the real the real nuts and bolts of foreign policy hasn't played a huge role in the campaign, let alone cross-strait policy. Well, that's what we're going to try to take on today. Uh, and we've already introduced our guests. So let's uh, just start out by getting a basic sense of what they think of the election and the candidates. And the way that I'm going to frame this is uh, just basically... If you take the thousand-foot view, how much will this election really matter for Taiwan and cross-strait relations? You know, depending on which candidate wins, uh, if it's Donald Trump, you know, we haven't gotten a a fully fleshed-out vision of his foreign policy. But, you know, he has said a couple of things. Do we uh, expect him to follow through on that stuff? Or in the case of Hillary, I mean, she served in the Obama administration is there really going to be a meaningful change from the Obama administration, or is that just going to be an extension of what we've already seen? So uh, we are going to toss it to the guy who uh, is tasked with thinking about this sort of stuff for the Thai administration. Uh, Vincent, what do you think about all this? Well, thanks, Keith. And today uh, I'm on this program uh, just representing my own views and not the National Security Council, which is a bit more problematic and it sort of limits the uh, info I can talk about. But as everybody knows, uh, this has been an eventful election, to say the least. But we're fortunate in the sense that Taiwan-U.S. relations are not based on politics. Uh, they're based on values and interests. We share the common values of freedom, democracy, and respect for human rights. So no election is going to change that. And we also share interests in a stable regional environment, economic prosperity, and finding areas where Taiwan can make real and substantive contributions around the world. Again, these are bigger than any one election. So while this is a consequential election, at the same time, I don't believe that will impact the core relationship that exists between Taiwan and the United States. Uh, all right. So we're looking at uh, steady relations uh, in the years ahead is, is basically what you're predicting, regardless of the candidate. Well, I think that uh, between the two country rela- countries, relations have been relatively stable over the past uh, couple of decades. I mean, there's been ups and downs as with every other relation. But uh, overall, I think it's been quite solid, and we don't see that changing in the near future. All right. So that is the take from Vincent Chow. Let's toss things over uh, to uh, Bill Stanton. Bill, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, it's true that there has been this uh, relative consistency in U.S. policies over the years. But um, why I think this election is so important is I think that is likely to change, um, particularly if I think Donald Trump is elected I think it would have very destabilizing consequences, uh, not only for Taiwan relations with China, but also for Asia in general. I base that on on three facets of his policies. Uh, One is his lack of commitment to U.S. alliances with Japan and Korea. 
uh, focusing on them as if they're business deals and, and the money issue, rather than the overall strategic importance of those relationships, which have huge consequences uh, for Taiwan. Uh, second of all, his attitude towards uh, both his and that of the Republicans. I saw a Pew survey the other day that showed more Democrats support a free trade agreement or a TPP uh, than Republicans. And he, if you look at the platform of the Republican Party, they don't even mention the TPP. Um, the Democratic platform does, but says they would have to be consistent with our these concerns, that any agreement we sign would have to meet our concerns about American workers and so forth. Um, so a much more likely result of a TPP, if you get the Democrats, in my view. The third of all, the biggest difference probably is uh, it's, Trump has made it quite clear he doesn't care about human rights, hence his love affair with uh, Mr. Putin. Um, I think that it's been quite clear she's got a huge record from the past, which is quite different from that of Obama, of quite a bit more concern about human rights, and particularly with regard to China, going back to the UN Women's Conference in 95. So I think that we're going to see very different policies, and the proof of that will be, of course, what kind of people get assigned. One of the things that troubles me about the Trump administration I don't see any advisors he's got on online, with the exception possibly of Peter Navarro, an academic uh, economist, who have spoken about the China issue or about Taiwan at all. So these, I think it could have huge consequences for our relationship with Taiwan. All right. We're going to toss things over to Ross now. Ross, what are your thoughts? Well, the, the biggest concern comes from whoever wins is we're going to have two we have a choice of two candidates who will begin their presidency in an incredibly weakened state, which for Asia policy or Taiwan means it's not going to be the priority. So whoever wins is going to be battling Congress, trying to form their administration, get their political uh, appointees through the confirmation process. Obviously, Taiwan is not going to be a priority for a considerable amount of time as the new administration settles in and frankly deals with uh, crises from day one, often of their own making. So uh, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton, there's going to be investigations. There's going to be people from the other party who don't like them and will be initiating more investigations. So Taiwan issues are certainly going to have to wait probably until the middle or the, or, or the third quarter of 2017 at the earliest. That, that creates a substantial risk for Taiwan both in the security space as well as uh, the business space to the extent that Taiwan wants to deepen trade relations or wants to get into the second group of uh, applicants or candidates to the TPP. So uh, certainly this election creates significant risks for Taiwan that that, uh, Taiwan government and our our friend Vincent needs to carefully analyze. Mm. All righty. So uh, that was far more even-handed than I was expecting. Uh, but uh, it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start just to give us a general perspective of uh, your thoughts on the election. We're going to kind of move into more specific regions. We'll see how that even-handedness fares uh, in these next couple of sections. Um, and uh, the way that we're going to break things down is uh, whenever I speak to U.S. analysts or analysts of U.S.-Taiwan, U.S.-Taiwan-China ties, the three areas that they always kind of talk about are trade deals, uh, Taiwan's international space, so that would mean like organizations around the world, uh, you know, observer status in the UN, uh, Interpol, etc., uh, and then security, 
which would mean for you know Taiwan U.S. relations. That would mean、uh, military deals, military hardware deals, and then just general you know the strategery around the region that the U.S. obviously has a lot of influence over. So we're going to break it down into those three things:、uh, trade deals, international space, and security.、Uh, just to kind of break up our thoughts on this、uh, a little bit, and we're going to start with trade deals. And just to give our listeners a little bit of an overview, this is something that we deal with a lot. But、uh, as Ross mentioned a, a, a second ago, one of the、uh, biggest things that we look at in this、uh, regard would be the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Taiwan has, of course, been、uh, preparing for that for years, trying to convince countries around the world that it has made the reforms that are necessary to do that.、Uh, the U.S. has been somewhat tepid, but you know, encouraging, kind of on the sidelines, saying、uh, we're open to it. Uh, Gavin, what other trade deals、uh, does Taiwan have that it's hoping to get U.S. support for? Well,、uh, trade deals. U.S. support is looking for trade deals everywhere. Taiwan, isn't it?、And、of course, to get any trade deals, like in the Asia region, it is going to need U.S. support or clout, right? To、But、counterbalance, to counterbalance. And of course, the, 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 every year they have the TIFA talks between Taiwan and the United States. And I'm just curious how our panel see those talks moving on in the future with. Clinton or Trump? All right. So probably、uh, the most pointed sort of you know area of cooperation or non-cooperation would be those TIFA talks. Let's toss things over to Vincent.、Uh, what is weighing on your minds as far as trade goes? <laughs> well, I think everybody brings up an excellent point, and that's the big question of whether the DPP will pass. I mean, both Secretary Clinton and Mr. Trump have come up publicly against it. I think that was a bit surprising in many quarters,、uh, given you know、uh, Secretary Clinton's past support for this trade deal and given Republicans'、uh, traditional support for free trade. So I think that、uh, given this opposition and the anti-trade sentiment felt by many in the U.S.,、uh, the chances that it'll pass in a lame duck session, to be honest, aren't that high.、Hmm. So therefore, the big question is: if not the TPP, then what's left? Well, I mean, first we can remain hopeful that even if the TPP does fail to pass in the next few months, it may still come back in one iteration or another in the coming years. So there may be renegotiation over some of its more contentious clauses, but I think it's difficult to rule out entirely the possibility of the TPP coming back. And even if there's only a slim chance left, Taiwan must keep on trying and be prepared. Secondly,、uh, we can also focus on other substantive areas of cooperation between Taiwan and U.S. So, for example, I, I don't want to sound like a government parrot here, but、uh, the government's、uh, Asia News Silicon Valley initiative、uh, seeks to build up exchanges with innovators and tech companies in Silicon Valley.、Uh, we can encourage U.S. firms to invest and build up their Asia operations in Taiwan. And it's not just a one-way street. I mean, we're also encouraging Taiwanese companies to invest in the U.S. We sent a huge delegation、uh, to the Select USA Summit in June, and、um, you know, the TIFA talks is one other area where、uh, we can、uh, make a lot of substantive progress. A lot of that goes under the radar, to be honest. You, you look at the TIFA talks, and you know, people don't see that there's many big-ticket items on there, and they lose interest. But to be honest, there's a lot of substantive work going on, and. That's how we should see the TIFA talks as a building block towards kind of a more substantive、uh, economic relationship between Taiwan and the U.S.、Well, I, I, I would say that the you know, looking at it from the perspective of being here in Taiwan, the initiatives that、uh, Vincent just described are things that past governments in Taiwan, regardless of DPP or KMT, ha- have pursued. Right, encouraging. More foreign investment or U.S. investment in Taiwan—it's that's not a partisan issue, right?、Uh, Chen Shui-bian or Ma Ying-jeou both encourage that.、Uh, sending delegations to to the U.S. to look at investment opportunities in the U.S. by Taiwanese companies engaging in the TIFA talks. I, th- I think the question is more so for the Taiwan side: is regardless of who wins, Trump or Clinton, two presidents who or two candidates who have clearly said as president they will take a 
somewhat anti-trade position. Now, where does that leave Taiwan? So you know, the question is, you can't do the same thing that you've been doing before. Right? We'll, we'll have TIFA talk, or we'll encourage people to invest in our Silicon Valley, which is very similar to uh, President Ma's uh, Aerotropolis or Chen Shui-bian's uh, Green Silicon Island initiative. So you know, the question is, how will Taiwan react to a U.S. administration, regardless of Clinton or Trump, that is somewhat anti-trade? Hmm. Do you see... Uh, a meaningful difference between the two on this front? Well, well, again, it, it will take a period of time in, until all the appointees and, and the policymakers settle into their jobs. But from what they've both said very clearly as candidates is their their starting point is certainly going to be pulling back from the pro-free trade policies of uh, recent U.S. presidents, whether, whether it's going all the way back to H.W. Bush or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush and Barack Obama to this disappointment of some of his core constituency to the left of the political divide. President Obama ha- has actually seen the value in, in lowering and pursuing lower trade barriers around the world. He, he gets it. Uh, and uh, Clinton and Trump, uh, as of now, don't. They, they, they have staked out a significantly different position. So whether it's Taiwan or, frankly, other trading partners of the U.S., they need to prepare policies to react to this situation. Mm. Well, uh, right. Let's, uh, well, we'll, we'll give you a chance to follow up in a second. But uh, let's toss things over to Bill. Bill, we're hearing there uh, from Vincent, you know, steady as she goes. Many of the, the same policies that we have been implementing are, are, are still relevant, still important. And we're going to we're still interested in pursuing them. We're hearing there from Raj, though, that, you know, the challenges are mounting and uh, some of these strategies will face real, real challenges. Uh, what would you add to all that? Well, one of the problems we face is that actually the U.S. doesn't depend a whole lot on foreign trade. It represents uh, exports of uh, goods and services only represent about 13.5% of the U.S. GDP, uh, gross domestic product. So um, whereas the case of Taiwan, it's more like 70%. Um, So the U.S. basically sells to its own market of 330 million people. And beyond that, the 13.5% is mainly Mexico, Canada, and to some extent the EU. Uh, For example, 1% uh, is to China. So it's not that it's not an existential question necessarily for the U.S. That said, um, I think the U.S. has always viewed trade as more than just simply trade. I mean, if you look back to the Marshall Plan or aid for Japan after World War II, um, we've always seen trade and trade agreements as part of a geostrategic infrastructure that cements our place in the world. And in the meeting that that the Singaporean prime minister had with Obama, they both focused on this aspect of free trade agreements. It's a way of the U.S., making sure that people understand that the U.S. is a Pacific country, an Asian country. It's got its foot uh, uh, on the ground here that we're involved. So I think over time, you know, we have to remember that Clinton was for the free trade agreement, the TPP, before she was against it. And I think that's clearly in response to pressure from Sanders. Significantly, Sanders wanted something in the Democratic platform which specifically said we will not ratify the TPP. That was watered down 
uh, changed, and now it just simply says the TPP would have to could take into our concerns about previous trade agreements which have not met the needs of American workers. So I'm not necessarily that pessimistic in the long term that we won't return to something like um, uh, the TPP, because I think it's in the strategic interest of the United States to have it. And it's actually in the interest of all the countries who are doing trade with China, because they don't want to become tributary states. So uh, I think there's, there's some possibilities there. Um, we've also seen some progress on the Taiwan side. Uh, AmCham has noted that uh, Taiwan has now changed its regulations uh, statute so that any new regulations affecting uh, import, uh, foreign businesses, they would have a 60-day comment uh, a period in which to review that. Um, and a certain longer period of time in which to provide recommendations to change it. So that was one of the things that was blocking a TPP. Probably the biggest and most significant thing we need to see is something on the agricultural front, and particularly, of course, pork. Because like uh, beef, which was also a big issue in Japan and Korea and was finally overcome, um, Taiwan always has to remember that actually agriculture represents less than 2% of its GDP. What import, what's important for Taiwan is exports. And if it can ex- put more exports into the United States, that's to, in its interest. So it has, to, it has to evaluate what's really important to it. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, we've gotten to pork, which means that we're really talking about Taiwan now. Uh, <laughs> let's throw things over to Vincent, because I know that he had some thoughts he wanted to throw in there. So he threw it to me right after pork. Um, well, I'm, You I'm, can address whatever you'd like to. <laughs> Thanks, Keith. Well, on the pork issue and the agriculture issue in general, I'm not going to speak on behalf of my colleagues working at the Council of Agriculture. They've been working quite hard on addressing this issue. But I think uh, both uh, Ross and Bill have raised good points in their uh, in their comments about trade, which is that it's it's truly more than just about trade and about numbers here in Taiwan. You know, as uh, Secretary Clinton, I think mentioned uh, over a year ago, it's also about uh, over dependence on the on the Chinese market, and is that something Absolutely. that 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 serves the best interests of uh, the strategic interests of uh, the U.S. here? So I think that's something that also definitely weighs in and is a point of consideration. But you know, more importantly, is overall. You know how 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 much do uh, campaign rhetoric uh, transform into policy, and and I think that's the open question. You know, like there's a lot of uh, comments going back and forth over the election, but how much will actually become uh, real substantive policy? I think remains to be seen until after January. All right, uh, very quickly, Ross, before we move on to the next topic. Well, the the challenge with changing from the rhetorical position that both candidates has have staked out during the election campaign, specifically on the trade issue, is we have to look at Congress as well. So if the Republicans lose control of the House, then the remaining Republican uh, conference or caucus is going to be weighted more towards this nativism, this populist position of Trump, right? It will move to the right if the Republican group shrinks. Even if the Republican group in in the House maintains its current size, it's still going to shift rightward, right? So even the, the if there's some moderate Republicans left in the House, it's still going to be a smaller group. And Democrats, to the extent that they're, they're the majority in the House, they're also going to be uh, pursuing these policies that, that the candidates have staked out with regard to trade issues. They're not going to become more open to trade deals, right? the Democrats in the House. 
and, and probably the Senate is going to play out the same way as well. So if the Republicans lose control of the Senate, there, there will be a smaller group of Republicans who are further to the right, who are uh, more anti-trade than Republicans have passed, been in the past. If Democrats take control, then the Democrat majority is, is also going to be uh, less open to trade deals than Democrats have been in the past. And, and either way, in the Senate, there, there, there's no party, neither party is going to have a, a filibuster-proof majority, which means one senator who doesn't like any trade deal will be able to hold it up. Hmm. All right. We're going to have to let that be the closing thoughts on the trade topic because we still have a whole lot more to get to. Uh, Up next, of course, uh, Taiwan is always trying to up its international presence in the world, its international visibility. Uh, And uh, this is another area where uh, the U.S. plays a big role in counterbalancing pressure from China. Uh, So we actually don't need to wonder too much about what the U.S.'s current stance is on this topic, because the U.S. State Department actually came out just this week with a statement on how it uh, is going to treat Taiwan in the international sphere. So uh, the following statement is from the U.S. State Department, and it is very up to date. Here's what they had to say. In keeping with our One China policy, we support Taiwan's participation in international organizations that do not require statehood. So... Participation with no statehood requirement. Meanwhile, in organizations that require statehood for membership, we support Taiwan's meaningful participation. So drawing a little bit of of a distinction there, but overall saying some amount of support is going to be given regardless. And uh, here we would be talking about groups like uh, Interpol, uh, the International Criminal Police Organization, uh, or, you know, a number of groups affiliated with the UN. And uh, we've been talking about these controversies throughout the year. So to start this section off, we're going to throw it to Vincent. Well, Keith, uh, you raised an excellent comment from a U.S. uh, State Department official. P.S. Susan Thornton recently told the Liberty Times that Taiwan's international participation is something the U.S. takes seriously. Well, it's something, uh, to be honest, we take seriously, too, here at the NSC. Uh, Therefore, we're grateful that the U.S., you know, they're willing to work closely with Taiwan to broaden our international space and showcase Taiwan's capabilities to both our neighbors and region and the wider international community. And one program I want to keep going back to is the GCTF. And it doesn't roll off the tongue. And, you know, there's lack of funding. So that's uh, two issues. But the Global Cooperation uh, Training Framework is really one program where the U.S. and Taiwan have worked together to share our strengths with the region. For example... Uh, we jointly invite policymakers, scholars, experts, and other people to come to Taiwan for training on specific areas of expertise we have. Hmm. So, like last year, we had like disease eradication workshops, you know, women's rights workshops, and so this is something that we uh, really want to work on in the years ahead. And hopefully, we'll be able to secure uh, some more funding uh, uh, for this uh, worthwhile program here. But I mean. Aside from international organizations, there are many components of uh, international space where Taiwan does play a big presence. And and in the past, the U.S. has been very supportive of that, and we look forward to continuing that in the years ahead. All righty. So a uh, little – some thoughts there from Vincent. Let's throw things over to Bill now. Well, one of the things that always surprises me when people talk about um, the years of uh, Ma Ying-jeou as a president – uh, for Taiwan's international space and other issues. When you think back on it, actually, during his time, uh, there was virtually no improvement in Taiwan's international space. They didn't take away Taiwan's uh, small number of diplomatic partners. Um, but aside from going to the uh, annual meeting of the World Health Organization Assembly, um, 
they never allowed, for example, observers to be a regular part of that organization. I myself was personally involved in efforts to help Taiwan get into the ICAO, uh, International Civil Aviation Organization. Um, in many other areas, we, we constantly uh, worked on this. But I remain kind of pessimistic, not about the work we can do together, but simply because China has enough weight and has enough diplomatic partners I mean, most of the General Assembly will go with China on most issues, that they can block our efforts uh, in many of these organizations, particularly those where there's a Chinese national who's in charge. Unfortunately, right now, for example, ICAO and the World Health Organization are both run by PRC citizens. Um, and they clearly take their instructions. So it makes it very difficult. I've even been involved at the ground level in trying. I remember when I was at AIT, there was a student, uh, a college student from Taiwan, who was turned away from the entrance to the UN where he'd been accepted to participate in a model UN program because he didn't have mainland identification. I mean, and this is prevalent actually throughout the world, and you continue to see it in the smallest venues where if there's a Chinese delegation and the Taiwanese show up and act at all like they're an independent country, well, for example, having a flag on their shirts, um, you know, calling themselves either the ROC or just even Taiwan, as long as it doesn't say Chinese Taipei, they get angry and they try to exclude those people. It's actually a very short, uh, short-sighted short policy on the part of China because it doesn't win hearts and minds. But nonetheless, that's what they continue to pursue. So I think it's one of the toughest areas to make real progress in getting Taiwan's participation. Mm. All right, and we'll throw things over to Ross. That, that raises the question, though, whether Taiwan's current efforts are sufficient, and, and uh, that would include the programs that Taiwan runs that Vincent identified. Uh, it's, it's not a question of, of money per se. It's, it's a question of the content, and are those kinds of programs enough to sway governments in other countries, not just the U.S., but other countries around the world to do more for Taiwan on this issue. Uh, so we know from recent history, again, regardless of whether it's a KMT or a DPP administration, that clearly the efforts to date are not sufficient to sway other governments to take a stronger stand on this issue. Um, and the, the, there needs to be a solution. It's probably going to have to come from more so from the Taiwan side uh, and make the case uh, we're excluded is not a good enough case because we, we know Taiwan's being excluded. We know it's a, a, a terrible situation. But Taiwan needs to do something that's persuasive. And, and that's another challenge that Taiwan will face with, with a rapidly changing political situation in the U.S. But, but again, just like with the economic and, and, and trade delegations, not enough, right? There, there needs to be something that, that is more of a game changer to persuade the other governments, including a, a Trump administration or a Clinton administration, to uh, do more for Taiwan on this issue. Hmm. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's throw it to Vincent there. So uh, do you think that uh, there is more Taiwan could do? Uh, but also, I mean, do, do, do you agree with Ross that uh, the ball is mostly in Taiwan's court, or, or would you be hoping for more support from uh, the next U.S. president? Well, I think that Ross raises a good point, but um, I also think that uh, when Bill raises this issue about real politics, it's certainly a factor that fl- plays in uh, importantly in Taiwan's international participation. You know, once we get into certain international groups such as uh, ICAO and Interpol and WHA, there is that uh, element of 
of cross-strait involved, and we must continue to be mindful of that. But at the same time, I, I keep wanting to go back into uh, areas where it are not just the big international, big flashy international organizations, but the stuff that we can do quietly. And in some areas, that, that quiet stuff is actually just as, if not more important than the big flashy events. And on that area, I do think that we have uh, a lot of uh, room for progress, as Ross said. And, and in many cases, yes, the ball is in Taiwan's court, because in these uh, these more quiet and these more low-key uh, channels, uh, there's a lot more flexibility in terms of the areas we can address and the things we can do here. Hmm. All right. So, uh, so far, we've been talking about uh, trade and international bodies uh, and what that is all going to mean for Taiwan as the U.S. is getting to work picking its next president. But we are coming up on a break now. When we return, we're going to be delving deep into the security realm Taking a look at what a Madam Clinton or a Mr. Trump presidency will mean for Taiwan security concerns in the years ahead. Stay tuned for that when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. Today, of course, we are focusing on the U.S. presidential election and what it could mean for this very country that we are in right now, Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Ross Feingold, Bill Stanton, Vincent Chow, and, of course, Gavin Phipps. Defense is what we're talking about here. Of course, the U.S. plays a big role in defense for Taiwan uh, as a provider of arms, on the one hand, uh, as a substantial force in regional politics. Uh, On the other hand, though... Uh, Over the last couple of years, we have seen a slowdown in arms deals, although there has been something of a trickle. Uh, And that pivot to Asia that the Obama administration was touting earlier, uh, well, many are saying that it didn't go as far as they would have liked it to. So that's some of the context that we're coming uh, to this election with. Uh, But let's throw things over to Bill Stanton and just get your general thoughts on how this uh, new president, whoever he or she may be, uh, may shake things up in terms of defense for Taiwan. Okay. um, First, let me just sort of to to be a little bit more specific about the record. During the three years that I was at AIT, we did two major arms deals worth over 13 billion U.S. dollars which actually uh, exceeded any previous single administration. There has been another deal uh, for $1.83 billion uh, just last December. Um, it's never stopped. One of the biggest problems has been that Taiwan hasn't had the budget and already had bought so much stuff that it was still trying to absorb that it really wasn't uh, showing up in new arms deals. Now that there may be uh, something of an increase, uh, wait, wait to see that in the defense budget but it remember it went down to less to about two to two point one percent during the last year of the uh... uh... Ma administration so the arms sales have been continuing the other thing is never to, you shouldn't forget or no one everybody should be reminded that a huge part of our military cooperation is unseen because it just involves training both in the united states and here we have an untold number of um, people, I, you know, numbers I can't cite, but, but that are quite uh, remarkably large, of military advisors, military officers, and others who come to Taiwan on a regular basis to give advice, to coordinate. The third point I would make is that, aside from what any other president does, the U.S. military itself, of all 
segments of the U.S. government recognizes the strategic and military importance of Taiwan. And therefore, they, more than anyone else, are invested in ensuring uh, defense uh, for Taiwan. I mean, this goes back to MacArthur um, and in saying that, you know, Taiwan would be, um, he was afraid it would become an unsinkable uh, aircraft carrier for the communist forces. He was always worried about the Soviets coming out. But the Chinese always accused us of making it an unsinkable aircraft carrier for the United States. In any case, it's an unsinkable aircraft carrier. And so there's, there's a struggle over who would have control of that, because if you dominate that and if you also dominate the South China Sea, you dominate all of East Asia. And that's something the Chinese are also, and the Koreans, um, maybe to a lesser extent, but certainly the Japanese are very invested in because they don't want to become tributary states. So we've got a lot of people here who care about Taiwan's ability to defend itself. So I would think that arms sales will continue. I think military cooperation will continue. Um, certainly if, uh, if Hillary Clinton is elected, certainly if you consider that one of her probable advisors is going to be Kurt Campbell, who has always been, who's a former Navy Reserve officer, has always been a strong supporter of the pivot to Asia. And the pivot to Asia always had this important military component as well, although it was downplayed lest it looked like a containment strategy toward China. So I remain pretty sanguine about defense issues and the defense relationship between Taiwan and the United States. Hmm. All right, some opening thoughts there. Uh, Ross, let's toss things over to you. Well, the, the, this challenge that the U.S. is facing, again, it's, it's regardless of who wins the presidential election, is some rapidly developing events around the region. So although there may be concerns in South Korea uh, or Japan about China's strategic moves, we, we also see a, a very significant change in the posture taken by the Philippines with regard to its relationship with China and with the United States, and specifically with regard to the defense relationship with the United States. And it's still unknown how that's going to play out in the months to come. But it, as of now, it does not look good for Taiwan's security situation for the Philippines to be growing closer to China. Mm. Uh, and, and how the next administration handles that, regardless of uh, who, who's, who becomes president is one of their challenges in, in formulating a defense policy for Asia. And it, it, frankly, it's not just the Philippines. Uh, other than Vietnam, we do see many of the ASEAN countries shifting their posture towards China, um, whether by choice or by force of, of uh, the massive trade flows with China or, or China's increasing military strength. Um, but Thailand would, would be another example of, of a country that's moving much closer to China than it had previously been and, frankly, moving away from a close relationship that it previously had with the U.S. I would say it's also bad for Taiwan. But this very similar to some of the other issues we were discussing earlier in the program. The key thing here, uh, I, I would strongly argue that it starts in Taiwan. So when we see you know, problems in the military establishment in Taiwan, which are certainly not the fault of the government. And, and again, it's not the fault of a KMT president or a DPP president. But when we see deficiencies in training, which has led to a number of accidents this year that have killed civilians as well as soldiers, uh, when we see very serious ethical lapses, you know, such as this horrible incident where, where soldiers tortured dogs, right, we, we see that there there's some serious institutional problems in the Taiwan military, 
And that is not something that the U.S. side can change. Uh, closer engagement with the U.S. can help that, and, and that's an important part of what training programs do. But uh, I think to persuade either a Clinton or a Trump administration to do more in that regard, I, I would still say that more needs to be done starting from the Taiwan side. Mm. All right. We've got another relatively sanguine and a relatively more needs to be done. Vincent, what are your thoughts? So, Keith, uh, the conversation has to be relatively tame tonight, I think. and uh, mm-hmm. it's, We're we gentlemen here. Gentlemen. We are. We are. And we haven't gone so much into uh, U.S. internal politics. But, you know, many of the issues that you raise are important. And on, on defense, I just want to add one point onto what Bill was saying was, was on arms sales. And, you know, I think it's important to note that congressional notification of arms sales only has to take place once the packages are over a certain threshold, I think $50 million. So that does mean that a lot of the things can go on, uh, you know, quietly and under the radar. And, and, and the fact that it's not on the news doesn't mean that necessarily it hasn't taken place. You, you know, generally, Taiwan-U.S. defense relations are a bipartisan issue in the U.S., as here in Taiwan. You know, we work closely with both the Republican and the Democrat administrations to broaden the scope of our uh, cooperation and also uh, to keep in close contact uh, with both sides on the issue on various uh, defense-related uh, Areas, so there's no reason or indication that this could change, or the either uh, presidency uh, from Secretary Clinton or, or Mr. Trump. So we we you just don't see that changing in years ahead. Hmm. All right. So some more uh, steady as she goes right there. Uh, let's uh, let's t- we haven't really been talking about the candidates too much. So I would like to refocus the conversation on the candidates themselves. So uh, let's start off with Ross then. I mean, it sounds like, once again, you're saying that uh, there is a lot that Taiwan could be doing. uh, But does that whole situation change for Taiwan, you know, how they should be trying to work, uh, depending on whichever president ends up taking the Oval Office, whether it be uh, Hillary or Donald? Well, one of the benefits that President Clinton would bring if she wins, is she is familiar with the issues. She's familiar with U.S.-China relations. Uh, we could separately argue whether some of her decisions over the course of her tenure uh, were, were prudent or not from a U.S. perspective or from a Taiwan perspective, frankly. But at least she's familiar with the issues. And as Bill mentioned, she would bring a team of advisors into government who are also familiar with the issues. That That is, that is very good for Taiwan. However, we then do have to consider whether those people are going to be friendly to Taiwan or, uh, again, seek a closer relationship or more stable U.S. relationship with China or push back uh, on the increasing number of issues that that are points of tension in the bilateral relationship. And Trump is just disinterested. Personally, he's disinterested in these kinds of issues. So again, as Bill mentioned, there there might be some advisors in a a Trump administration uh, who would be very friendly to Taiwan. In fact, I I would argue that given how how right of center Trump and the people around him have become, they they might have a a very uh, natural inclination to be anti-China, not just on trade issues, but on a range of issues. That may or may not translate into things that are good for Taiwan. I, I think at this point, it, that would be extremely speculative to say mm-hmm. that there's a bunch of anti-China people in a Trump administration. They will do more for Taiwan on, mm-hmm. on any issue, well, whether it's trade or defense or Taiwan's participation in international organizations. One does not necessarily flow into the other. Mm. All right. Keeping the focus uh, still on the candidates themselves and uh, what you see them bringing to the strategic table. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I, you know, I, I generally agree with, with Ross, um, particularly with regard to, you know, assumptions uh, about what we're likely to see with the Clinton administration and uh, uh, or a Trump administration. It's a little bit harder to predict with Mr. Trump because he has shown a total lack of interest in Taiwan and, and largely in broader Asian issues and has actually... Uh, you know, indicated, uh, you know, of course, that he might even be willing to give up those, uh, our alliances in the region. But I think Hillary Clinton, from what I know of her, when I met her back in 95 at the women's conference in Beijing, um, from then, and when I worked, uh, not directly for her, but under her when I was at the State Department, um, I think she's much tougher on China than just about any president, I mean, I go back to Jimmy Carter. Um, that's when I first entered the Foreign Service. And, uh, of course, you know, we uh, we cemented our relationship with China back then uh, in 79. I joined the Foreign Service in 78. Um, I think she's the, the toughest-minded and the hardest-headed about China of any president we would ever have. Now, that certainly would be true for Mr. Trump, I imagine, on the trade side. But I would think we would see that on trade, but we'd also see that on issues like the South China Sea, on human rights, on a number of other issues. Um, so I think it, um, I, I don't think she's the same as President Obama, who's been much more uh, risk averse. I mean, in some ways, that was a good thing because. You know, it was Hillary Clinton who wanted to get us into Libya, and she voted for Iraq, and a lot of people think that was an unwise decision. Uh, in retrospect, certainly I thought it was an unwise decision at the time. <laughs> but um, I think, by and large, I think that's why the Chinese really don't want her, and why most of the polling and most of the newspaper articles on the mainland tend to favor Trump. Um, I think it's because he's both seen as potentially a weaker U.S. leader, a less familiar U.S. leader to whom they can take advantage of, because traditionally the Chinese prefer the Republicans ever since Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, but also because they know she's a pretty tough lady, and uh, they're a little bit more fearful of what she might do when she gets to office. Uh, if I may add, I, I actually have in my hand here, Keith, my absentee ballot, mm. which lists uh, two other candidates for president. You got to mail that soon. I, I, I do. Yes, it, it, could, it, could, it could arrive seven days after the election. But, oh. but frankly, it's a, it's a New York ballot, and Hillary Clinton <laughs> is going to win New York. Gavin, I am not going to let you touch this. I, I see your fingers I, moving. I was, uh, I was <laughs> going to say, can you put my name on one of them? I, there is a write-in. Yeah, yes. no, I know, I know. Can you yeah. put my name on one of them? It doesn't like matter sanitation what commissioner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, like, county, <laughs> county court judge would, would certainly be a perfect job. <laughs> for somebody as judicious and careful with their words as Gavin. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the reason why I bring this up is there, there are two other candidates, Jill Stein from the Green Party and, and uh, former Governor Johnson of, of New Mexico from, from the Libertarian Party. And the guy from Utah. Not on my New York ballot. He, didn't, he didn't make it. <laughs> um, although as a Republican, he, he is certainly an option to write in, not, not just for me, but for Republicans across the United States who are unsatisfied with Donald Trump as the party's nominee. But, but again, the reason why I bring this up is uh, whether it's 3% total or 5% or 10% for, for Stein and, and, and Johnson, uh, I, I see that as 
another pressure point on on Trump or, or Clinton not to bring up some of these issues. So yeah, they'll, they'll be tough on trade, but are they going to start getting in, involved in extensive human rights dialogues or even South China Sea disputes? Bernie Sanders from from the left and you know, Jill Stein sort of continuing on, on you know, being the left candidate, a libertarian. Uh, Johnson is, is clearly against those kinds of initiatives, whether it's human rights or, or defense uh, around the world. Uh, so there, there is significant pressure point, even on a Hillary Clinton, despite you know, Bill's points that she'll be a tough person on China. I, I think there's legitimate concern whether she would be bringing these issues up on a regular basis or in a tough way, because there'll be pressure on her not to. Mm. Domestic pressure. Right. All right. Well, uh, closing out this topic, let us finally put Vincent on the hot seat talking about a U.S. election. Well, I think there's only uh, really one way uh, we can work this out. And and the same way brings us uh, together after the elections as well, which is to open a betting pool. Mm. Uh, at ICRT, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's illegal. Oh, it's illegal. Okay, okay. It's maybe here in Taiwan, we can't do that. Well, so, so in fact, I, I, I believe it is the DPP that has taken a strong view against uh, casinos. I understand. Well, in that case, maybe I should withdraw that. <laughs> in case, they, they in, in Australia, case our... and it's always traditionally been the best predictor of who's going to win. Oh wow, maybe we should because take where a... you put your money down is better than who you say you're going to vote for. <laughs> All right, so a potential road trip for the show to take, but uh, continue on, continue on, Vincent. Right, right, right. But you know, uh, one thing that both of you bring up is is excellent, and and, and that is a new administration will bring risks to uh, the town relationship. You know, there's a certain element of uncertainty, but at the same time, it's also going to bring opportunity. You know, there's going to be new faces in the administration. There's going to be new people to work with, new agendas to discuss, and I think that that itself is 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 welcome. And I mean, Taiwan, like the U.S., is a democracy. You know, we we understand how the transfer of power works. We understand that in certain elements, there is a continuation of policy. In other elements, there may be uh, some tweaks and some changes and some uh, reflection of a new direction that the president wants to take. But, you know, I don't think the systems is going to be over uh, upended or, you know, completely changed, regardless of of whether it's Secretary Clinton or uh, Mr. Trump. So, I, I, I prefer to think about it in terms of opportunity, and I think this election will bring that opportunity uh, here to our relationship with Taiwan. All right. So uh, this has been a very uh, wide-ranging conversation, but we're going to have to round it out here real quick. Uh, before we round things out completely, let's uh, hold a little lightning round with our commentators to get their take. Uh, just to end on a slightly higher note, um, what we're going to be looking for here is your quick take on A, who you predict to win the election, and B, uh, what you expect from them with regards to Taiwan in the first hundred days. So, uh, Bill, let's throw this to you first. What is your pick and your prediction? Uh, I just wanted to point out that there's an article, a commentary this morning by Paul Krugman, quote, the title of which is, The planet is screwed if Democrats don't win the Senate. He's talking about the climate uh, change treaty. Um, so Ross is quite often referred during the session quite rightly, to the importance of the Congress in whatever happens. So it may be that it's more, it's, it, what matters just as much as who wins uh, both for the, uh, climate change but also for the Supreme Court. It's just as important who's going to win the Senate and what the final results are in the House as it is who's going to be president. But in any case, my pick is that Hillary will win. Um, it's still a tight race. But in the long run, uh, it's my hope that given the choices, the American people will do the right thing. Mm. 
And uh, do, do you have uh, one prediction for the first hundred days of a uh, Hillary presidency? Yeah, um, I would say that Kurt Campbell will have a very high-level uh, position in a Hillary Clinton administration, um, either Deputy Secretary of State or perhaps uh, as a National Security Advisor, something like that. All right, and uh, keeping the momentum going, let's toss things over to Ross. Well, with regard to Taiwan, regardless of uh, which candidate wins, it, it ooh, get... dodging the first part. All right, that's allowed. Well, I was sure. going to get to that. Oh, okay. The second now part. I've messed up your flow. <laughs> that's why he hasn't said his voting for. <laughs> waiting to see who wins. Somebody grab his ballot. Somebody grab his ballot now. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, We're not going to grab your ballot. Oh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll think about writing you in for garbage, <laughs> commissioner. Uh, well. Regardless of who wins, in the first 100 days with regard to Taiwan, there, again, there will be this uncertainty of who's going to be staffing the administration and what kind of policies towards Taiwan they bring. So I, I think for Taiwan, that creates significant uncertainty, w- whether it's trade or defense or, or any other issues. Uh, who's going to win? All, all data looks looks like Clinton is, is going to win. But assuming that that holds to be true and she does win, it's going to be very, very close. And you know, there there is the great potential of, of Trump organizing some kind of movement that, that could peter out over time, but rallies and challenging the election, right? He's, he's very publicly said that he has doubts about the transparency and, and the fairness, et cetera, of the electoral process. So if, if he loses by a close election, he might very well borrow from what we've seen in the past here in Taiwan of having large rallies of people protesting election results, although hopefully there won't be any magic bullets. Mm, no, no. Let's uh, let's hope not. Or, or or let's also hope not for uh, any color coordinated shirt rallies uh, in the U.S. as well. Uh, Vincent, closing thoughts. Well, uh, Keith, you're going to have to open that betting pool for me to uh, divulge uh, who I think is going to win. Mm. But I think regardless, you know, that's how democracy works. Someone always wins and loses. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in, in this case, it may be the American people and the losers may be the TV networks who suffer a huge shortfall in advertising. But, you know, we, we just finished our own uh, 100 days, actually, uh, a couple of months ago. And, and, you know, the first 100 days are always going to bring some element of surprise, some disappointment, some areas where you find that, you know, things may not be as easy as you thought out in the... In the campaign, but but I think overall there's going to be less polarization, and and for many I think in the U.S. and in in this part of the world that's going to be a very welcome change. Mm. Uh, so expect the unexpected. Well, I mean, hopefully not, but that's right. <laughs> and and what do you think that'll mean for Taiwan, really quickly? Well, for Taiwan, I think it's important for us to to to, to monitor the situation, to keep in uh, contact with people that need to be kept in contact, and to mm. and to and to try to get some insight as to uh, where Taiwan policy is going to change in the future. But I, I keep repeating this, and and it's worth pointing out that this question is asked during every U.S. election and what it means for Taiwan, and that over the past. I would say decades, you would find that very little has has in fact changed, and that and that both the Democrats and Republicans, you know, work in a very stable and steady uh, way when it comes to Taiwan, because ultimately it's about values and interests. It's not about politics. You know, there's there's nothing to be gained politically by saying this or doing this about Taiwan. It's 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 it comes back to you know, does this benefit uh, Taiwan? Does this benefit the region? Does this benefit the U.S.? And I think you know the answer to that is is has been quite evident over the past couple of, uh, decades of our relationship. All right, cool. We will leave it there. Gavin, do you have a do you have a lightning round pick? Yeah, I've had enough of your colonials trying to elect someone. It's taken a year and a half. Enough already. <laughs> Just get it over with, please. Just get it over with.
Yeah, I was hoping for some kind of response like that. All right, so ending on a high note, just what I was hoping for. <laughs> well, Keith, I think you have a pick as well. No, no, I ask the questions. That's why, <laughs> that's why they give me the big mic and uh, the script, and uh, I get to deflect uh, even more effectively. Well, so no Keith, one... Keith, I think I, I'm pretty sure you were at the Democrats Abroad uh, primary. I was not, actually. No. I wasn't there, no. No? No, okay. no, no. I stand no. corrected. But I am from California, so much like you, my vote will not count for anything, uh, <laughs> at least at the presidential <laughs> level. Uh, but for the sake of Gavin, I think that we're, and for the sake of me, we're going to have to walk away from this topic uh, and uh, not talk about presidential politics anymore because we are coming up on the end of the show. We will leave it there for today. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Look for it right around the 815 mark. Depends on our commercial load. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes couple of other places as well. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Is it over yet? It is over. Oh, you can uh, rub the crumbs out of your eyes. Uh, also, Bill Stanton. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Ross Feingold. Good night. Vincent Chow. Thank you. Uh, glad to have you on the show for the very first time. Thank you. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.